This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to... Hold on. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. Where the history is wacky and so are we. You're hanging out with the outlandish historians, Adrian And Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Dear World Love History Podcast. On this episode, episode 9, we are going to be starting our Romanovs mini-series. And we are covering the Romanovs from the death of Alexander II... Very briefly covering Alexander III because our main focus is Nicholas and Alexandra and their kids. And that means our story will end at the very end with their very tragic execution. So why the Romanovs, Renee? Why do we choose the Romanovs? How do we land here? Well, I mean, for years, we've really always been talking about them and a lot of other families, royal families, that kind of have a very messy history. It's kind of like, you know, they're people. And I think people forget to remember that when they learn about the Russian Revolution and Nicholas II, it's kind of like, oh, well, this family screwed up or, oh, yeah, they were killed. But it's a family. It's not just a czar and his wife. It was a father and a mother. And we want to show you that this family, these kids, were just killed they were slaughtered and it was awful yeah i mean that all happens at the end but there's also a personal connection for us no we're not romanovs but if only no i don't think i want to be a romanov things ended very badly no uh we're russian so you know our parents are from um what used to be the soviet union um although today would be ukraine um but yeah so you know we grew up on russian fairy tales and russian food we just finished a pot of borscht Mm, delicious but anyway you know it's definitely the interest in the history plus you know a bit of the personal whole you know hey buds we're russians too kind of thing so let's just dive right on in uh so first we are going to give you just a quick bit bit of background um on the language and the uh, well, not so much the language, but the names. So we'll be referring to Nicholas and Alexandra by their Russian titles of Tsar and Tsaritsa, um, or as it is in Russian, Tsar and Tsaritsa, uh, especially as those are the titles that Nicholas liked best. Sometimes we'll switch to emperor or empress. Um, really, it's whatever suits our fancy at the time. Both are right, uh, but Tsar and Tsaritsa are the traditional Russian titles. So in a lot of things, we'll give you the Russian pronunciation first, uh, but mostly we'll be using the English pronunciation of things just because that's what, you know, you'll be most familiar with, most likely. Um, unless, of course, you are from Russia. Now, when it comes to the Russian names, children aren't given a middle name like they are in the United States or in some other countries. They have a first name, then their father's name is in the middle, and then the last name. So for a boy, it would be Vich added at the end of the father's name. Uh, meaning son of, or ovna or evna for a girl, uh, meaning the daughter of. So Nicholas was Nicholas Alexandrovich, uh, meaning the son of Alexander, or in Russian his name was Nikolai Alexandrovich Romanov. Um, now, our mother is Irina Samuilovna, meaning, you know, daughter of Samuel, or rather Samuil. Anastasia would have been Anastasia Nikolaevna, uh, daughter of Nicholas, um, you know, 
Renee and I actually have middle names because we were born in the States. Um, but if we weren't, then in the middle of our name, you know, it would have been Adrian Anatolievna or Renee Anatolievna. Uh, but no, we have middle names instead. So let's set the scene. By the time we meet up with the young Tsarevich, Nicholas Alexandrovich, the Romanov family had ruled Russia for almost 300 years. And like many monarchs before the Romanovs, they believed that it was God who gave them the power to rule Russia. The divine right to rule, as it was called, the divine right of kings. So St. Petersburg was, for centuries, the seat of the Tsar of Russia. From here, the Tsar ruled over 130 million people from all different backgrounds. Slavs, Jews, Balts, Germans, Georgians, Armenians, Uzbeks, and Tartars. Some of the people lived in cities, but even more of them lived throughout the countryside, in villages filled with log huts. Most of these people were peasants, too poor to move from place to place. Many were too poor to afford even enough food to feed their families. They spent their entire lives in the same village from birth to death. Russia was a place where progress came very slowly. It really wasn't until 1861 that the Russian serfs were freed by Alexander II, Nicholas's grandfather, which earned Alexander the title of Alexander the Liberator. Soon, some of the staying in the one place things started to change, and that was all thanks to the Trans-Siberian Railway, which was started in 1891. The people of Russia could travel from Moscow along a 4,000-mile set of tracks ending at the Pacific Ocean and Moscow was where a lot of the hubbub of the country took place. It was originally the capital of Russia until 1712, when the capital became St. Petersburg. In 1918, it became the capital once more. Three guesses why that is. But in St. Petersburg stands the Winter Palace, and it's honestly one of the most beautiful palaces ever built, both inside and out. If you haven't seen pictures, you'll need to look it up ASAP, okay? Because in St. Petersburg, Peter the Great built his buildings in the Western European style, not the Russian. So a prime example, the Cathedral of Our Lady of Kazan looks remarkably like St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. He was definitely going for a completely different vibe than Moscow. Yeah, so St. Petersburg became the very center of life and culture for the Russian upper crust. There were operas, ballets, symphonies, and, you know, other sorts of entertainments were staged there, including the music of Tchaikovsky. What's interesting is that the music and entertainment and books were very much Russian. So there were authors like Pushkin and Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. But the court language of the glitterati was French, le gasp, not Russian. And all their fine clothing came from the fashionable shops of France or from Great Britain, as we see with the young Romanov daughters later on. But unlike the hard toiling lives of the Russian peasants, and they really did have a rough time of it, the wealthy Russian nobles spent all day futzing about to their heart's content. Here's an example. The men goofed around by gambling while the ladies would sleep in, get up around noon, give me that life, get their hair done, and then take a nice lovely drive, or visit friends, or whatever else it is that fancy Russian noblewomen found joy in. Now, the balls that the footloose and fancy free looked forward to the most were the ones hosted by the Tsar and Tsaritsa at the Winter Palace. 3,000 guests would gather for dancing, whining and dining, until about 1.30 in the morning. Now, that's what we call a party, and... Honestly, when our fam Russian family gathers, that's usually quitting time for us as well, if not later. So, you know, 
leaving the party at 3 o'clock, not unusual. That's 3 o'clock in the morning, not the afternoon. Um, so I guess we can say we party like a czar. And so we pick up our timeline in March 1881. A man threw a bomb at the czar's carriage as it was making its way through St. Petersburg. As luck would have it, Alexander II was just fine. But some of the people who were with him weren't. He went to go check on them when a second bomb was thrown. And this was the bomb that spelled the end for him. How he managed to survive long enough to be brought back to the Winter Palace, we really don't know. The explosion kind of, sort of, tore him apart. He lost one of his legs, his stomach was completely torn open, and his face was basically destroyed. Before he was taken to the palace, he managed to get out to the palace to die there. The future Nicholas II was only 13 when this happened. His father, Alexander, was the Tsarevich. Or as it's known in Russian, the Slednik, the successor, the next in line. It was here that Nicholas watched his grandfather pass away. At the moment the surgeon declared the emperor is dead, he became the Tsarevich, and his father became Tsar Alexander III. Also, quick thing, um, to give you the Russian pronunciation, for Tsarevich, it's Tsarevich. Um, so yes, he is now Alexander third, And unlike his father, the liberator, Alexander III believed in strict control over Russia and the populace. After all, his father's assassination was the prime example of why a czar should remain an autocrat. And people sure did behave themselves under Alexander III. Kind of speaks to the Machiavellian question, is it better to be loved or feared? In Alexander III's case and Machiavelli's opinion, definitely feared. The Russian monarchy was very absolute. There was no wiggle room, no interpretation of laws or the will of the Tsar. The Tsar's word was final, and the only being he had to answer to was God himself. Or herself. Who knows? Russia did not have a parliament. They did not have a congress. There was no balance of power or any sort of democratic ideal in place. Every single human being within Russia's borders answered to the Tsar, or to the ministers, police, and government officials acting in his name. And this included his own family members. And it was the Tsar who put all of the officials into place, and the Tsar who could remove all of them if he wanted to. Dude didn't even need to have a reason. So when Alexander III became the Tsar, he moved his residence to the Anichkov Palace. He was not a fan of the Winter Palace. It was a little too drafty for his taste. So Alexander's wife was Maria Fyodorovna, which was actually the name she took when she married him. And here's where the family tree branches all curve into one another. Maria was born Princess Dagmar of Denmark. Her older sister, Princess Alexandra, married the future Edward VII of England. And more than this, she was actually a hand-me-down fiancé. What? She was originally supposed to marry Nicholas, Alexander III's older brother, but when Nicholas died, she was passed on down to Alexander. Makes a lady feel wanted, right? And we'll get back to the convoluted family tree of what seems to be all of European royalty at a later point. No joke. It's twisty and bendy. So the Tsarista Maria was the belle of the ball. Everyone loved her, and she loved to be in the center of it all, which is a good way to tackle the role, I'd say, when, you know, every eye is on you. By the time Maria was 30 years old, she had given birth to five freaking kids, okay? Talk about securing the line of succession. Nicholas was born May 18, 1868. Remember, Nikolai. Then came Alexander in 1869, 
but unfortunately, he died as a baby in 1870. Then there's George, born 1871, or Georgi. Then, I don't even know how to pronounce this woman's name in English, so Ksenia, 1875. Michael, or Mikhail, 1878. And Olga, 1882. And naturally, you know, Maria was the one who looked after all the kids and played referee during their squabbling. Alexander III was busy being czar, and honestly, I don't think he was really one for the warm and fuzzies. So the difference between Alexander and Nicholas is like night and day. Alexander III was tall and burly. He spoke his mind and didn't care at all if he hurt someone's feelings, including his own sons. He was definitely a Russian's Russian. He loved everything about Russian things. And he wasn't a fan of the fancy clothing. You know, he liked the simple things, which included wearing the same set of clothing until it was falling apart. You know, very economical. Nicholas, on the other hand, was shy and completely overwhelmed by the future duties he would have to take on. He was a much gentler soul than Alexander and a voracious reader. It, you know, it was one of his favorite hobbies, especially reading military history. He was sweet with his siblings and was close to his brother George, who, unfortunately, was sent to live alone in the Caucasus, with servants, of course, since he had somehow caught tuberculosis when he was a kid. We don't know how this happened. None of the research mentions it. Um, but, you know, it's odd considering all of his siblings and his parents were completely fine. And holy crap. Okay. Nicholas loved George's humor. This is the sweetest, most adorable thing ever. So apparently when George would tell one of his many jokes, okay, he was a jokester, Nicholas wrote them down and then put them in a box. And then he'd take them out later on to read them and get a good laugh. You know, he did this even when he was czar. All right, we know what you're thinking. A bunch of rich grand dukes and duchesses live in large, lifestyles of the rich and the famous. Trust me, we thought the same thing. But not so much. I mean, Adrian and I had a way better bed than Nicholas and his siblings when we were little. Okay, the kids slept on army beds, took bracing cold baths because what's better in the morning? And had really simple breakfast. Porridge. And this was because Alexander III was all about the simple life. Alexander would roll out of bed at 7. Okay, maybe rise like a czar. Who knows? Also use some refreshing cold water to wash himself put on what amounted to peasants' clothing, and always made his own coffee. Who said czars don't know their way around the kitchen? Maria took it a step further and had some boiled eggs with rye bread for breakfast. Yum yum. Right? I hope she used some butter, though, or something that resembled butter on the bread. When it came to lunch, there were way more choices, but... If Alexander III finished and got up before everyone else, that meant the kids had to stop eating and leave the table as well. And why was this a bad thing and completely unfair? It was because they were always served last after any guests that had joined them, so they always had less time to eat. I mean, frankly, if I was Alexander, I would really try to slow it down a little bit, but he was a very duty-driven man. I doubt he did that. Dinner time without the parents was when the kids could actually eat more, but apparently this also meant that they started throwing bread at each other. Oh, children. Good to know they're the same no matter what their station is. Now, Nicholas had several different tutors growing up, which included history, language, geography, and dancing, and one of his tutors was Konstantin Petrovich Pobedonostev, the guy who served as a tutor to Alexander III when he was an up-and-coming youngster. He taught Nicholas things like autocracy is the most awesome form of government, the orthodox religion is the end-all, be-all, and anti-Semitism is an absolute must. 
all the most fashionable autocrats were sporting it at that time. What he didn't teach Nicholas is that the world spins madly on and just doesn't sit around waiting for the Tsar to catch up with progress or realize progress is happening. But you can't teach that when you don't think that way yourself. But all the studying and simple living couldn't prepare him for his future as Tsar. Only Alexander could. And he was doing anything but that. Apparently, this guy didn't think his son would ever be ready to become Tsar or learn to become one. When Nicholas was only 13, his father publicly declared him to be a little bit of a girly. When Nicholas was 20, someone brought up giving him more responsibilities, like taking charge of the government committee. Big fat no from Alexander. The only command Nicholas was given was at the age of 19 of a regiment of horse guards. Alexander didn't really do much when it came to preparing Nicholas for his future role. So, thanks, Pa. You really only have yourself to blame, sort of, for the shit show that was Nicholas as Tsar. To be more specific, Nicholas didn't learn the ropes. Not how to speak to politicians or how to win a room. He didn't learn how to deal with people on an international scale either. To be honest, Nicholas was better off being a scholar or military historian than Tsar. On the plus side, his English language skills were top notch. He could move to England and live there forever, honestly. The people would think that he was a native. Nicholas could also speak French and German, both of which would come in handy. So Nicholas did keep a diary of his own, which isn't unusual for the time. Um, you know, and this is actually where a lot of his firsthand accounts come from, including his courtship with Alexandra, his time as Tsar, and his time before Alexandra, when he would party and visit his mistress. Oh yes, he had one. But only the one will give him that, and only before he was married. By 1890, Alexander was only 45. He wasn't dying anytime soon, right? So Nicholas spent his time at operas and ballets instead of spending his time as a czar in training. He went ice skating, saw plays, and attended lovely balls. And that was just fine with Alexandra, who didn't think too highly of his son. And he had zero qualms about saying this kind of stuff in public also. But they did spend some time together, hunting. Almost every morning, dad and son went hunting. Okay, so back to that mistress we mentioned. Her name was Matilda Ksyshinska, and Nicholas first met her in 1890. She was a dancer in the Imperial Ballet. You know, they flirted a whole lot, but didn't get much further than that, since they were never really alone for that long. Um, they didn't see each other until a year later, since Nicholas and his brother George left on an adventure. A cruise that lasted nine months, to be exact, starting in the Mediterranean and heading out to India and Japan. And part of the reason for this cruise... So Nicholas could forget about a certain Princess Alex of Hesse. Speaking of said princess, Princess Alex Victoria Helena Louise Beatrice of Hesse-Darmstadt was born on June 6, 1872, in Darmstadt, near the River Rhine, to Princess Alice of England and Grand Duke. Now, excuse us for pronunciation for the Grand Duke's name. We are not quite sure how it's pronounced in German. Um, I tried to look it up. I hope this is correct. Louise IV of Hesse. She was kid number six out of seven. Um, you know, back to that convoluted royal family tree for a hot second that was mentioned earlier. So Princess Alice was Queen Victoria's third kid out of the nine she had with Prince Albert. One reason why the realm of European royalty became related to one another. Now, Alex was a happy little girl, always smiling and laughing, which earned her the nickname of Sunny. And unlike some royal families of the time, and definitely unlike the royal families of previous eras, 
Alex and her family would head to England every year to visit Queen Victoria at Windsor Castle, Balmoral Castle in the Scottish Highlands, or Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. Oh, and we'd like to mention that out of all of her grandkids, and Victoria had quite a few, Alex was her favorite. Now, when it came time to raising her kids, Princess Alice was very involved, even with all the charities and causes she was a part of. Though an English nurse did see to the day-to-day things, and like Nicholas's childhood, Alex's was also filled with the simple things in life, you know, simple furniture, food, and lots and lots of fresh air. Idle hands were not a thing in this family. They always had to be busy, whether it was Alice teaching her kids how to paint or play the piano, or cake-making and knitting. And like the kids of today, they had to make their own beds. And instead of calling Grandma, they wrote her letters. So being a good person was important to Alice, and she made sure that she passed that on to her kids. You know, being a good Christian person sort of situation. Unfortunately, Alice suffered from a lot of health issues, like headaches and neuralgia. In addition to her own health troubles, things at home started to take a turn. In 1872, young Freddy, Friedrich being his full name, the second boy of the family started showing signs of hemophilia, also known as the royal disease, a gene passed from women to their sons. Queen Victoria's son Leopold, who was, ironically enough, Freddie's godfather, also suffered from it. Then, in 1873, poor young Freddie died at the age of two from internal bleeding. He had fallen out of a window, and Alice was devastated. Alex's last sibling was born in 1874, but by this point, the happy sunny family life was honestly a thing of the past. Alex and May, since they were so close in age, became the best of friends, and Alice did take some comfort in her youngest daughters, but still, the lady was not well. And then, more tragedy came along. In 1878, everyone in the family caught diphtheria, including dad, but not young Ella. She was the only one who didn't get sick. Princess Alice took care of every family member herself, but all the love and devotion in the world couldn't save young May. Diphtheria took her at the age of four. And just when all her kids were starting to get better, Princess Alice caught the disease. And on December 14, 1878, at the age of 35, Princess Alice of England passed away. Young Alex was torn apart by the loss of her mother and her younger sister. And to add insult to injury, all her toys and other beloved items were disposed of, just in case there was any diphtheria still hanging around. And like a knight in shining armor, bless her, Queen Victoria swooped in to fill the void for Alex, her favorite granddaughter, especially since little Sonny was no more. The death of her mother and sister, especially since it happened as an awful one-two punch, took the light out of Alex. Only six years old, and she'd already lost so much. And this is where our future Zaritza begins to draw inward, an unfortunate trait she carried through her adult life. Smiles became rare. After all this, she's the prime example of someone who hates change and new things. And this is only at the age of six. As she grew up, it made her so awkward around people that she didn't know. And worse, people thought she was, to put it lightly, A bitch. Resting bitch face, maybe? Who knows? But in reality, she just couldn't handle all the things around her at once. Now, Victoria sent English tutors to educate little Alex. Like Nicholas, she was smart and picked things up quickly. She even liked learning and talking about politics. 
In the end, she was taught to be quite the Victorian Englishwoman, which would have been great if she was going to be living in England or Hesse her entire life. Not the best upbringing for other royal houses, though. And in addition to tutors, Alex spent quite a bit of her life in England as well. Visiting and staying with her grandmother, they, they came really close. And Alex picked up some of Victoria's less, we'll say, less appreciated traits, such as stubbornness and the need to control the things around her. So when does Nicholas come into it? Well, it was in 1884 when the two first crossed paths. Alex was only 12 while Nicholas was 16. Alex's sister Elizabeth, uh, who was, you know, called Ella by those who loved her, was getting hitched to Grand Duke Sergei, Nicholas's uncle. Oh, and also, Nicholas and Alex were related, second cousins to be exact, and they both couldn't take their eyes off each other, which is super weird considering the age difference and, you know, that Alex was 12. But uh, I guess it's all about keeping it in the family. So before Alex headed back home to Hesse, Nicholas adorably gifted her a brooch, which she was thrilled about, but she was also worried about what people, specifically her grandmother, would say about the gift. So she gave it back, and Nicholas couldn't believe it. He was pissed off and gave it to his younger sister instead. The two wouldn't meet again until 1889 when um, Alex came back to Russia for a visit with her sister Ella. Now, Alex was 17, and Nicholas was 21. This is five years later. And definitely a better age for making eyes at each other. And boy, did they. Nicholas took advantage of her visit, and out they went on many an adventure. Ice skating, sledding, the ballet, opera. By the end of this visit, the two were madly in love with one another. But for the Tsar and Tsaritsa, that wasn't the ideal match for Nicholas. A minor German princess? Nah. The one thing Alex wasn't sure of when it came to Nicholas was the Orthodox religion. Alex had been born and raised a Lutheran. She was devoted to her faith, very religious. The thought of converting didn't sit well with her, and the future Tsarista of Russia had to convert to the Russian Orthodox faith in order to marry the Tsarevich. Man, did she have a man-versus-self sort of struggle going on. I love him, but I love my religion. I love him, but I can't reject my faith. Was really trying time for her. Now... After her wonderful visit, there was more tragedy in store for Alex. Her father, Luis, passed away in March 1892, and what makes it even worse is there was no warning. He wasn't sick like her mother had been. You know, one day he was fine, the next day gone. And up until this point, Alex and her father had really become quite close. You know, she had um, taken a bigger role in the Hesse court since her mother had passed, and so they spent a hell of a lot of time together. Now, the Duke's death was, um, you know, just another huge blow for her. And as had become her habit, she grieved alone and kept all those feelings on the inside. Had Alex had a therapist, the therapist would have had a field day with all of her inside emotions. Once again, Queen Victoria swooped in to take care of Alex, whom she lovingly called Aleki. Um, and, you know, she wasn't the only one. Other family members lovingly referred to Alex as Aleki. And like Alexander III... And Maria Fedorovna, Victoria, was so not Team Nicholas for Alex. Um, she thought Russia was too harsh a place for her, Alex. Did Victoria have a sixth sense? Uh, because she sure thought that something bad could happen in Russia. To the point where she asked Alex's siblings, Ernie and Victoria, to uh, get the thought of writing her name with Nicholas's in a heart out of her head. In 1889, Alex had actually given one big hard pass at marrying the Prince of Wales's firstborn son, Prince Eddie. 
Sadly enough, though, Eddie died in 1892, age 28, which meant his brother George became the heir, the future George VI, don't you know? We mentioned earlier that Nicholas went on a lovely cruise adventure in 1889 after Alex left Russia. He and his brother George stopped in at Athens and picked up their cousin, also George, Prince of Greece. They soon ended up in Egypt having a blast. In India, Georgi had to say goodbye and head back home to the Caucasus since he wasn't feeling super awesome. Let's remember, he had TB. Eventually, Nicholas arrived in Japan. It was in Otsu that an assassin tried to take Nicholas out with a sword. The blow was coming in at his head, but luckily all Nicholas came away with was a scar on his forehead. His cousin Prince George of Greece stopped the second swing from hitting Nicholas at all. So, why did this man from Japan try to kill the future Tsar of Russia? There's two stories explaining it, but let's remember they are only stories. We can only guess as to what was going through this sword-wielding guy's head. The first story is that Nicholas and his buds committed some sort of faux pas while they were in a temple. When they should have been, they weren't on their best behavior. The second story goes that a samurai was mad with jealousy because Nicholas looked at his wife, or touched her hand, or flirted with her, or made heart-shaped eyes at her. We're really not sure of the actual context. Okay, whatever the reason, the cruise was over and Nicholas was headed back to Russia. Unfortunately, he returned with a new dislike for Japan. Way to judge an entire country based off the actions of one person, dude. Seriously, that, though. That is not how it is done. Mm-mm. Here's where Nicholas and Matilda started seeing one another. And yeah, we'll call her his mistress. He definitely wasn't in love with her, not like he felt about Alex. His and Matilda's relationship went from secret to, hey there, we're out and about on the town and we don't care who sees us. He even called, as they used to say, on Matilda at her papa's house. Okay, he gave her gifts, he came to see her ballet performances and rehearsals, and took her out on drives in his troika, which is a sled pulled by three horses. Eventually, she rented a house in St. Petersburg so they could be alone together. Guess she was trying to get as much time with him as she could until she had to give him up for his future wife? We will give Nicholas his due. It wasn't always all fun and games. He did chair a committee that was responsible for caring for people when there wasn't enough food. He didn't phone this in. He showed up, he got his hands dirty, even going so far as to give his money to help the cause. Through all of this, Nicholas's relationship with his dad didn't change in the slightest. It was still the same old, same old. Case in point, Finance Minister Sergei Vit put out an idea that Nicholas should become the president of the Trans-Siberian Railroad. And Alexander didn't have one good thing to say about his son. What? But you know the Zodovich. Have you ever had a serious conversation with him? No, sire. I have never had the pleasure of having such a conversation with the heir. He is still absolutely a child. He has only infantile judgments. How would he be able to president such a committee? Nevertheless, sire, if you do not begin to initiate him to the affairs of state, he will never understand them. Such fatherly warmth. It's unreal. Okay. Then, in 1893, Nicholas was cordially invited to attend the wedding of his cousin, George, the Duke of York, to Princess Mary of Teck in London. And Nicholas really liked London, okay? 
And honestly, so do we. So, Nikki, we get it 100%. But here's the kicker. Nicholas and George looked so much alike that people kept confusing them, which is fucking hilarious, okay? So there's actually a picture of them together, and they really honestly look like twins. It's super eerie. Um, And you can check out this picture in our show notes, the link for which is below. Now, someone actually mistook George for Nicholas the day before his wedding. Big oops right there. Wonder if that person was immediately uninvited. Now... Nicholas, um, while there, even spent some time with Queen Victoria, and he really liked her, which is a good thing, since she was one of Alex's favorite people in the world. Um, and, you know, Victoria got to know him and realized that she he wasn't, you know, what she thought all Russians to be in terms of being, like, cold and harsh and that kind of thing. Now, back in Russia, Nicholas and his mistress were finally starting to fizzle out. In 1894, Nicholas flat out told Matilda that he wanted to marry Alex, and eventually their dalliance came to an end. Good thing she didn't quit her day job. In his diary, Nicholas II wrote, Okay, this is so cute. My dream is someday to marry Alex H. I have loved her a long while and still deeper and stronger since 1889 when she spent six weeks in St. Petersburg. For a long time, I resisted my feeling that my dearest dream will come true. And this quote... Um, first-hand quote from his diary is included in Nicholas and Alexandra by Robert K. Massey. Now, from the first moment he saw her, Nicholas was in love, and that love never wavered, not even when the people of Russia didn't feel the same way about Alex. While his feelings held strong, he wasn't sure if his affections would ever amount to anything. You know, while visiting Russia previously, Alex didn't make the best of impressions. You know, not on him, but on others, because she was a shy and awkward human being. And the people of Russia weren't afraid to call her out on her behavior or style of dress. You know, maybe not to her face, but definitely when Alex was within earshot. Um, And they did that knowing that Alexander III, who was Alex's godfather, and Maria didn't have any intention of encouraging the match between their son and a minor German princess. So, you know, means it's totally okay to talk about her. Alexander wanted Nikki to marry Princess Helene of France. She was the daughter of the Count of Paris, who was the pretender to the French throne. France was a republic at this point, but Alexander wanted to strengthen the alliance between these two countries um, and their people. He believed a marriage between a Romanov and a Bourbon would do just that. But neither Nikki nor Helene were okay with the plan. So, you know, Nikki wanted no one other than Alex. So anyone that was proposed to him by that point is just going to be a big fat no. Helene, on the other hand, refused to convert from Catholicism to the Orthodox religion. But that wasn't going to stop Alexander III from shopping around for another princess, and he found one. Princess Margaret of Prussia. She put her foot down, though. No way, no how was she converting, which was great news, considering Nicholas threatened monkhood if he was forced to marry Margaret. Drastic step, but all right. It wasn't until Alexander III fell sick with influenza during the winter of 1894 that he decided to stop opposing the marriage between Nikki and Alex. You know, and... You know, we keep saying Nikki, or rather I'm currently saying Nikki, but that is a nickname that was used for him very lovingly by his family. He was known as Nikki. He'd said everything he could say, um, you know, made every argument he could, this is Alexander, to stop Nikki from pursuing the marriage. She'd never convert, Alexander said. Let me at least try, Nikki replied. He just wanted the opportunity to propose, you know, whatever the outcome. He just wanted to be able to do that, to put it out there into the universe. Since his health was so unpredictable, Alexander's, his kidneys were having issues ever since he got sick. So he started thinking about what would happen to Russia once he was gone. He didn't believe Nikki had the experience necessary to rule well, you know, which wasn't his fault, since he didn't receive much in the way of training. Tisk tisk papa. However, Alexander figured he could give his son one thing, a stable marriage. 
The last thing needed was a new czar who was still trying to settle matters in all aspects of his life. The moment finally came for Nicholas to pop the big question. When Alex's brother, Ernest, was getting married in Coburg in the spring of 1894. Royalty from all over Europe was coming to the wedding, and Nicholas was able to attend as a representative of Russia along with his three uncles, Grand Dukes Sergei, Paul, and Vladimir. When Nicky's train stopped in Coburg, he stepped onto the platform in full uniform, I bet that looked amazing, and he found Alex there waiting for him. Okay, Queen Victoria and Kaiser Wilhelm II had also arrived for the wedding. It was one ginormous family reunion. So Nicholas didn't propose to Alex until the next morning, and honestly, it was amazing he was able to hold off that long. I'm shocked he didn't blurt it out right then and there when he saw her on the train platform. But Alex was hesitant. Love wasn't the issue. It was religion. But Queen Victoria came in on a white horse to save the day. She really enjoys doing that. She's very good at it. While she was against the match before, now Victoria understood how deeply Nikki and Alex loved one another. And having been in a marriage based on love herself, how could Victoria deny her own grandchild the same happiness? She sat down with Alex and talked it all out. Lutheranism, orthodoxy, not that much of a difference, right? Even Kaiser Wilhelm was all for the marriage. Her sister Ella was the one who really helped Alex rationalize and think over everything. Since her husband, Sergei, was never going to become czar, not unless a couple of people dropped dead all at once, Ella didn't have to convert to orthodoxy. Eventually, however, she chose to do it. Because changing from one faith to another, it wasn't that weird of a thing to do. Alex certainly wouldn't be the first, and definitely wouldn't be the last. Eventually, Alex decided that by converting, she wouldn't actually be switching religions. Lutheranism and Russian Orthodoxy both fell under the umbrella of Christianity. She'd still believe in God and the Gospels and all the things that came with Christianity. She just practiced it differently. The next day, after her brother's wedding, Alex agreed to marry Nicholas. He had the cutest reaction to her acceptance. Okay, so he wrote in his diary. A marvelous, unforgettable day. Today is the day of my engagement to my darling, adorable Alex. The whole day I have been walking in a dream, without fully realizing what is happening to me. The whole family was simply enraptured. I cannot even believe that I am engaged. Like, holy, just wow, okay? Just wow. Yeah, like, whatever their faults, um, as rulers, as individual human beings, they are, like, the cutest couple they're just so adorable with one another. It just, it makes your heart melt. And your heart will continue to melt. Trust us. Yeah. All right. So the next 10 days that they spent together in Coburg were like a dream. They had breakfast every morning with Queen Victoria. They went on walks, picked flowers, took carriage rides, sat together by ponds, ate dinner together every single night. It was the perfect way to spend the days following their engagement. And then it was time to say goodbye. They spent their final evening together in Alex's room, how scandalous, watching the rain. It wouldn't be until June, a few months later, that they would be able to see each other again. Nikki traveled to England and spent three days all alone with Alex in a cottage at Walton-on-Thames, which was owned by her older sister, 
Princess Victoria of Battenberg. As they had done in Coburg, they truly cut themselves off from the outside world and enjoyed the time they had together. They picked flowers, fruit, enjoyed the fresh air. But they couldn't stay like that forever. The outside world was calling. So when their three days were over, they left the cottage and made their way to Windsor Castle, where Queen Victoria and Father Yanishev, who was sent by Alexander III to start teaching Alex about Russian Orthodoxy, were waiting for them. Now, Alex and Nicholas quickly fell into a predictable schedule. Nikki would start every morning with a ride, be back in time for breakfast with Alex and Victoria. He couldn't miss that. Lunch, dinner, entertaining guests, enjoying live music, romantic rides in the park, etc. It wasn't anything extravagant by any means, but it was a nice and relaxing way to spend six weeks. I'll take that vacation. Now, while Alex was supposed to be learning with Father Yanishev, she would often sneak away to go into Nikki's rooms, which is how she discovered he kept a diary. She started leaving him lovely little notes, usually in English, okay? This is what I'm saying, like, heart-melting factor. Many loving kisses. God bless you, my angel. Forever, forever. I dreamed that I was loved. I woke and found it true and thanked God on my knees for it. True love is the gift which God has given, daily, stronger, deeper, fuller, pure. All good things, though, must come to an end. So at the end of July, Nicholas and Alexandra said goodbye one more time. Unfortunately, Nicholas's happiness wouldn't last long. He and his family were worried about Alexander. He wasn't feeling well at all. He suffered from lack of sleep, headaches, and weak legs. When his doctors told him to go to Crimea and rest there, otherwise known as Krim, Alexander instead went to Spala, Poland in September to stay at the family's hunting lodge. He wasn't going to stop running the country just because his health wasn't 100%. A czar doesn't get a vacation. Not a thing. As would be expected, Alexander's health kept getting worse, so Dr. Leyden, a specialist from Vienna, came on the scene. After assessing Alexander's condition, he was diagnosed with nephritis. Nephritis is a condition that deals with the kidneys being inflamed. So earlier, when we mentioned Alexander was sick with influenza, we also mentioned that he started having trouble with his kidneys. This is everything coming full circle. This time, when Dr. Leyden told Alexander he had to go to Crimea and actually rest, he listened thankfully. So for the first few days, Alexander looked like he was getting better. He was able to walk on the beach, breathe the fresh air, um, but then he was confined to bed once more. He couldn't walk. His food was seriously limited, so much so that his daughter Olga, who was 16 at the time, had to sneak him some ice cream because he wasn't allowed to have that. Um, And he seemed to love that one above all other foods. He ate it with the enthusiasm of a little kid. So Nicholas asked Alexandra to come to Russia as quickly as she could, instead of traveling as was befitting her station, you know, the wife of a future czar. She traveled on the train just like any other average passenger. The reason for this was because the person responsible for taking care of her travel arrangements was overwhelmed with his responsibilities in light of the czar's filing help. Nicholas met Alexandra at the station and traveled back with her to Levadia. Alexander III, ever the stubborn bull, okay, insisted that he greet Alexandra in full uniform while sitting in a chair rather than laid up in bed. This was against the advice of everyone around him. But in his mind, this was the proper way to receive the future empress of Russia. It was at this time that the engagement between Nicholas and Alexandra was made official. With this out of the way, an awful way to put it, but there it is. The dying czar became the center of attention once more. For days, Nicholas and Alex were in a kind of limbo. You know, they were happy because they were with each other. Their engagement was finally official, but there was a dark cloud hanging over them. Nikki's father was dying. He was going to be czar soon, you know, way sooner than he expected, than anyone expected. But even more than that, Alex was growing angrier and angrier at how those in the household treated Nikki like Mr. Cellophane. Okay, for people to completely disregard Nikki and treat him like he's non-existent simply wasn't right. 
was her thought process. You know, he was the next in line to the throne. He was someone, not just an afterthought. For ten days, Alexander suffered, growing worse with every passing day. And then, on November 1st, 1894, at around 2.30 in the afternoon, Alexander III passed away. You know, Nicholas's initial reaction was to panic, and that's understandably so. With the passing of his father, he was now Tsar. He turned to his cousin and friend, Sandro, and shared his fears. He wasn't ready. He didn't want it. He never wanted it. He wasn't prepared. How was he supposed to take care of his family and his country? You know, per Nicholas and Alexandra by Robert K. Massey, here is exactly what he said. Sandro, what am I going to do? He exclaimed pathetically. What is going to happen to me, to you, to Xenia, to Alex, to mother, to all of Russia? I'm not prepared to be czar. I never wanted to become one. I know nothing of the business of ruling. I have no idea even how to talk to the ministers. Okay? He was just thrown into the fire. So shortly after, Nicholas stood on the front lawn of the palace where, among family, officials, household servants, and members of the aristocracy, a priest swore Nicholas as his imperial majesty, Tsar Nicholas II of Russia. The next morning, the priests arrived to complete the conversion ceremony for Alexandra. The ceremony was done in time for Nicholas, Alexandra, and Maria to attend a service at the palace chapel. Nicholas made his first imperial decree after the service, announcing Alex's new name. She was, from that moment on, Grand Duchess Alexandra Fyodorovna. Thank you. I was having issues with my tongue right now. (laughs) With all the hoopla over, Nicholas and Alexandra could marry. Originally, they had planned to marry in the spring, but in light of everything that had happened, Nicky decided to move it up. With his father now gone, he wasn't going to let go of Alex. He wanted to make it official between them as quickly as possible. Plus, his four uncles were being pretty forceful about their advice behind the scenes. They told Nicholas the wedding had to be a public one, and so therefore, it was. Meanwhile, things were a mess when it came to Alexander III. Since he had died so young, there was no ceremony ready to go. No directives, plans, funeral arrangements, nothing. His body basically laid out for a week until arrangements and decisions could be made. Once things were settled, Alexander III, with his family in tow, left Lavadia to Sevastopol, where the funeral train began. He made his way to Moscow and the Kremlin and then on to St. Petersburg, before finally being taken to the Cathedral of the Fortress of Peter and Paul, the resting place of the Romanov Tsars. Friends and family from all over Europe traveled to St. Petersburg to attend the funeral and pay their respects, including monarchs from Greece, Spain, England, and Serbia. And this did include Edward, Prince of Wales, and his son, George, the Duke of York. Now, 61 royals in total showed up to pay their respects and represent their nations. Alexander III laid in state for 17 days in St. Petersburg where the people of Russia could come and pay their respects. There were also services held twice a day. Then, on November 26, 1894, minutes before 1 p.m., Nicholas and Alexandra were married at the Winter Palace. The day of the wedding was also the birthday of the Dowager Empress Maria Fedorovna, Nicholas's mother. Due to the occasion, Alexandra was able to wear a white dress. Remember, they are still in mourning. So, but because they're getting married, she could wear a white dress. Now, Maria placed the nuptial crown on Alexandra's head, and together they made their way to the palace chapel where Nicholas was waiting. Since the wedding was during a time of mourning, the bride and groom were unable to host a reception or go on a honeymoon. 
That would have been a whole lot of bad juju. It was one thing to have a wedding during a mourning period, but anything more than that would have been disrespectful and inappropriate. As an FYI, Russians are a superstitious lot, okay? We can't even begin to get into all the superstitions we we grew up with. The Russian people had this to say about Alexandra. She has come to us behind a coffin. She brings misfortune with her. Why? Because the funeral of Alexander III took place before her marriage to Nicholas II. But that's not something she had any control over, so you can't blame her for that. But again, superstitions, okay? And so... After the ceremony, the couple went to Anichkov Palace, where Maria was waiting for them. After some food and conversation, Nikki and Alex called it an early night since she wasn't feeling all that well. Even married, Alexandra continued writing in Nikki's diary before going to sleep that night. Alex wrote, At last united, bound for life, and when this life is ended, we meet again in the other world and remain together for eternity. Yours. Yours. When she woke up the next morning, she felt like writing in it again. This time, she wrote, Never did I believe there could be such utter happiness in this world, such a feeling of unity between two mortal beings. I love you. Those three words have made my life in them. As we know, by this point, Alexandra was a very shy and reserved person. Before she left for Russia, Queen Victoria sat her down and shared some wisdom with her. You gotta win their love, babe. And honestly, that was one of the most crucial things Alexandra could have done as the new Tsaritsa. Get the people to love her, and not just the nobles, but all the people of Russia. Love and respect. Key for any new monarch, especially a foreign princess. Sound advice, but for Alexandra, it was hard. Even though she grew up in the public eye, she wasn't comfortable with the attention. When she was in the privacy of her own home with Nicholas, she was a vibrant and affectionate person. You know, she laughed easily. She joked around. She was easy to talk to. It was very easy to see how Nikki had fallen in love with her. When she was in public, however, she held herself apart from everyone. She was almost standing at attention like a soldier. Okay, super serious expression in place on her face. Some people thought she was being uppity. In reality... Alexandra was just super uncomfortable having everyone's eyes staring at her. And like all people who become awkward at times like this, she looked it. And so, all the hoity-toity nobles judged a book by its cover. They were unforgiving of what they thought was Alexandra's snooty behavior. Okay, apparently no one stopped to think how coming into a new society with new rules and modes of behavior could affect someone. Instead, they made fun of her behind her back. Anything and everything was fair game. Her clothes, her dancing, even her manners. Manners that were straight out of the Victorian playbook. And since her manners were very much Victorian, speaking of, the crazy excess the Russian nobility lived their lives by shocked the hell out of her. Gambling, partying, spending money on anything that took their fancy. Plus all the gossip that even school kids would be jealous of. Okay, to Alexandra, their lives were completely pointless. Ouch. As a result, she wanted to spend even less time out in public. She bugged out of public functions early, so sorry, got a boogie. I'm not feeling super at the moment. That became her main excuse. If Nicholas or Maria were entertaining guests, she wouldn't come down. Her private rooms became her safe haven from the rest of the world. Okay, life in the palace also wasn't the easiest for Alexandra. Because of how quickly she and Nicholas were married, there was no time at all for her own residence to be prepared. This meant they were living in Anichkov Palace with mom. Dude's the ruler of his own country, and he's still living in his old bedroom with the missus. Alright, fine. So it was a set of six rooms he had lived in while growing up. Rooms that he had shared with his brother George. Oh, and here, Maria was the woman in charge of the household. Okay, Nicholas ran the country from his sitting room, while Alexandra worked on a Russian in the bedroom next door. 
Honestly, it wasn't the worst things could have been, but it did mean they had limited time to spend alone. Nicholas did manage to visit Alexandra between meetings, but they couldn't even have dinner alone. Their rooms didn't have a dining area, so they were forced to eat their meals with Maria. The only time they had to spend alone was when they were sleeping or Nicholas was reading to her in French in the evening. It's possible they wouldn't have minded living in a one-room shack if that meant that they could spend more time together. Somewhat worse than the lack of quality time was Alexandra's role in the palace. Maria was the mistress of the house, and Nicholas spent a lot of time with his mother. She had just lost her husband, after all, so he made sure to cut out time in his day to sit and chat with her. That makes sense. We get it. Nicholas had always been close with his mother. When he needed help or an opinion in regards to ruling, he asked her, and Alexandra was left on the outside looking in. Nicholas was her partner, and yet he went elsewhere for counsel. That definitely stung. And who knew Alexandra would look at it that way? Definitely not Maria. After all, Alexandra was new to Russia and the way things were done. What could she know about the politics of this country? While Alexandra was unhappy with the status quo, Maria was hurt as well. She didn't mean to offend or hurt Alex in any way. And then, of course, Alexandra felt awful that Maria felt awful. It was just, it was a cycle. But it didn't change things. And Maria, unfortunately, didn't make things any easier, through no fault of her own. The way the Russian court structure was broken down was a little bit weird. The Dowager Empress was technically more important than the current Tsaritsa. Even when they would arrive as a family, all three of them, Maria would enter with Nicholas and Alexandra would be escorted in by one of the Grand Dukes. Maria also wouldn't hand over the crown jewels. I mean, really, lady? Once Alexandra became Empress, they were supposed to go to her. But no, Maria wanted to keep them for herself. Like many of the Russian court, she loved shiny things. Nicholas had to ask his mother to give them to Alexandra, but Maria still said no. It wasn't until Alexandra decided that, you know, she no longer wanted anything to do with the crown jewels that Maria handed them over. The main reason, though, Maria was worried all those gossiping tongues would start wagging. The scandal of it all, the dowager not handing over the crown jewels, how could she? During this time, as tensions between Maria and Alexandra continued to get worse, there were two things running through her mind. Get out from under Maria's nose and into a house of her own and, of course, get pregnant with a son to ensure the Russian line of succession. Now, it's important to note why the male line of succession is so important in Russia, especially since there had been women who ruled on their own before, such as Catherine the Great, who was crowned after the death of her husband, Tsar Peter III. Apparently, their son, Tsar Paul I, hated his mother so much that he changed the law to cut women from the line of succession. The only way a woman could ever inherit the throne of Russia was if all the boys in the family dropped dead. So, a very slim chance. And so, the watching and waiting started. When, oh when, would the young Tsaritsa get pregnant? Unfortunately, Alexandra was really quite sick during her pregnancy. You know, she suffered from headaches and terrible nausea. They were her constant companions. Luckily for her, though, there was an officialdom that protected the Tsaritsa from the prying eyes of the public. Her health was a closely guarded secret. No one was allowed to talk to the press or make any announcements whatsoever. And this really worked in Alexandra's favor. So when she was forced to go out for some kind of public event, she felt sick the entire time. 
And she was often stuck in bed as a result of, you know, how sick the pregnancy was making her. And all she wanted, all she asked for really, was to just get away from it all. She didn't like Winter Palace, and she wanted to make their home somewhere else. So, only wanting Alexandra's happiness, Nicholas moved them from the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg, the, you know, that's the palace the Romanov rulers called home since the 1700s, to the Alexander Palace at Tsarskaya Silo, otherwise known as the Tsar's Village. There were two palaces located within the Imperial Park, the Catherine Palace and the Alexander Palace, which was the smaller of the two. And they absolutely loved it at the Alexander Palace. And when they got there, Alexandra chose two dozen rooms within the palace to make a home for her, Nicholas, and their future kitties. And of course, the rooms she chose needed some TLC. You know what that means? HGTV could have had yet another remodeling show. Blank Slate, Royal Palaces Edition. That would be an interesting one to watch. I'd watch it. Anyway, so Alexandra was able to decorate her home exactly how she wanted. And boy, were people surprised. She wasn't raised in Russia obviously. She didn't have their tastes. She didn't have, you know, their interests in decorations. It wasn't about decorating in a way that screamed money and royalty. It was about decorating the rooms in a way that made her feel comfortable, that, you know, think more warm and cozy and less museum. She converted the rooms into what would be expected, a library, two studies, because one wasn't enough, a dressing room for Nicholas, a general drawing room, you know, among other things. But, It was her private drawing room that people couldn't get over. Why? Because everything in there was lilac, and that was Alexandra's favorite color. The aristocracy was shocked, to put it politely. This was their Saritza? What a commoner! Cue their nose sticking up in the air, okay? But Alexandra couldn't give a damn. And lady, you know what? Fuck them all, because purple's my favorite color, and that sounds like a good drawing room to me. It was a room where she found peace. Surrounded by photographs of her family. So who's the real winner here? Oh, and did we mention there was also a pool? Not in the room, uh, you know, obviously. But uh, the palace had an indoor pool. It was a saltwater pool. Um, You know, big yay for them. So Alexandra wasn't okay with just living in a palace. She wanted a home. Okay, you know, in the way that she grew up in a home. It wasn't just a house. It wasn't just a building where people lived. It was a home. Somewhere to hang her hat. A place with warm and fuzzy feelings. Comfort. Which is weird to think about. Um, You know, obviously royal families before them had made homes, but not such intimate ones. They wanted to create a place for their children to grow up that was simply theirs. Nicholas and Alexandra retreating into the country was great for them. You know, as a family, that is, um, you know, it made sense. It offered them a more private and peaceful life than in St. Petersburg. But, and this is a big one, living in Tsarskaya Silo isolated them from their people. Sure, someone came from the city every day to talk business with Nicholas, but it was almost as if they were living in a bubble. They couldn't see what was going on around the country. As the imperial family, that wasn't something they could afford. After spending nearly the entire summer in bed, Alexandra was exhausted. Make sense to you? It should. The pregnancy had taken absolutely everything out of her. That little bundle of joy was active to the extreme. Okay, Alexandra, when she was nearing her due date, she wanted her sister near. Therefore, in the fall of 1895, Ella came to stay with her. Okay, so Nicholas and Alexandra thought that their kid would arrive by mid-October. But that didn't seem to be happening. Baby had its own ideas about when to show up. Unfortunately, when Ella arrived at the end of the month, there was still no baby. 
But have no fear, Nicholas was on baby watch. As he kept a constant eye on Alexandra, he crossed his fingers he wouldn't be swamped with work while, you know, running a country. When the baby came, he wanted to be able to enjoy the arrival of what he hoped would be a son. They even had a name picked out, Paul. A few weeks after originally anticipated, Alexandra finally went into labor around 1 a.m. on November 16th, 1895. She spent 20, okay, 20 very painful hours in labor. Alexandra couldn't stand. Her back was killing her. She was forced to lay in bed or on one of the couches. Ella and Maria rubbed her back and legs to release some of the pressure. While Victoria couldn't be there for her favorite grandchild, she did receive constant updates about Alexandra's condition. Even Nicholas was present for the labor, and oh boy, this poor man, okay? Maybe because of how much pain Alexandra was in, seems the most likely reason, honestly. He was in a constant state of tears, pacing, or chain smoking. Sometimes at the same time. Maria spent much of the day praying, but Alexandra was a trooper, and finally at 9 p.m., the baby was born weighing 10 pounds. Big baby. In Russia, there was a tradition. When a baby is born to a czar, the cannons in St. Petersburg are fired. 300 rounds meant Azadovich was born. 101 rounds meant a Grand Duchess was born. On this day, when the cannons began firing, the people immediately dropped whatever they were doing to count the rounds. Only 101 shots. Nicholas and Alexandra had had a girl, Olga Nikolaevna, and she was absolutely perfect. They were absolutely in love with her. So what if they'd had a girl? They were still young enough to have more children. After all, Nicholas was only 27, and Alexandra had just turned 23. Some people were so hoping for a boy, especially his own family, but Nicholas made sure to let the people of Russia know how excited they were. Congratulations poured in from all over the world, and to the court chamberlain he said, I am glad our child is a girl. Had it been a boy, he would have belonged to the people. Being a girl, she belongs to us. There you have it, folks. They were, rightfully so, in love. In honor of Olga's birth, Nicholas pardoned those in prison for political and religious crimes. And he also pardoned those who committed minor crimes. So maybe if they stole a loaf of bread or something. But if they were imprisoned for murder, sucks for them. We hope they got a very, very used to their cell. Victoria's way to congratulate the happy couple was to find them a right proper English nanny for Olga. Obviously, what else do you get a person, you know who has just come into this world, whose mother has just given birth to her. Not kidding. She was both great-grandmother and a godmother also. Now, Victoria, the Russian people, members of the British press, they all almost fell over when they found out that Alexandra would be breastfeeding the child, just as her mother had done with her. That was incredibly unheard of in royal families. Why? Because babies were usually passed on to a nanny and a wet nurse once they came into the world. But that's not all. Alexandra was really in the mood to shock the world. She was also going to bathe Olga and knit her clothing. She wasn't just going to be the aloof mother who sees her children at the appropriate times of day. Alexandra was determined to be involved and actually do the raising. 
Nicholas, of course, helped and delighted in it. He fed Olga. He recorded all of her firsts in his diary. He took photos of her. They were completely besotted with this little girl. There was absolutely no way Alexandra and Nicholas were going to let their little girl out of their sight. She even slept in their room with them. On November 26, 1895, Olga was christened Olga Nikolaevna Romanova. This was a joyous occasion three times over. That very same day, Alexandra and Nicholas celebrated their first year anniversary, and Maria turned 48. Happy birthday, Dowager Empress. It also meant that one year had passed since the death of Alexander III, officially ending the period of mourning. And what a way to end it. Russian Orthodoxy didn't allow for the parents to attend the christening. Um, But in any case, Alexandra wasn't given permission to get out of bed until a few days later anyway. She was still recovering from childbirth because, ouch. Okay, from the day of her birth until about the middle of December, Olga slept in the same room as Nicholas and Alexandra in a bassinet beside the bed. When Mrs. Inman, the nanny Victoria sent to Russian, arrived, she immediately had Olga moved upstairs to her own rooms as it wasn't seen as the best use of a Tsaritsa's time. Honestly, there are worse things, but all right. From the moment Mrs. Inman arrived, Nicholas and Alexandra weren't fans. English nannies are strict, unless they're Mary Poppins, of course. There is a way for things to be done, and they're usually done at a certain time. Yeah, that was their philosophy. And Alexandra's constant visits to the nursery were apparently bothering Mrs. Inman. I mean, come on, lady. That's her daughter, her first kid. Give her a break. She didn't want to be far from Olga. That's understandable. That makes sense. So here's a cute story. One day, when Nicholas's sister Xenia was visiting, they took her up to the nursery to see Olga. Instead of bringing Olga out to everyone for them to see, as Xenia thought they would do, Nicholas and Alexandra got into the playpen with Olga, sat down, and started playing with their daughter. It was completely unexpected, but come on, how fucking adorable is that? To the happiness of Alexandra, Nicholas fired Mrs. Inman in April of 1896. He couldn't stand her, so pack your bags and get the fuck out. Go back to England. It was around this time that Alexandra had to stop breastfeeding Olga. It was such a heartbreaking moment for her because she loved doing it. But Alexandra and Nicholas would soon be leaving for Moscow for their coronation. With the mourning period over, Nicholas could at last be crowned. All right. And this is actually where we are going to stop it because in episode two, well, to episode 10, part two of the Romanov series. Ooh, all these numbers are confusing. Um, so in part two of the Romanov series, we will pick up with the coronation of Nicholas and Alexandra. And then we will also meet the rest of their children. You know, there's four other kids to come. Um, so, guys, thanks so much for hanging out with us on this episode of Dear World Love History. Make sure you stay till the end. We've got two fantastic promos for two amazing podcasts that we definitely think you should listen and subscribe to. Make sure you follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at Dear Historians and Instagram at Outlandish Historians. And if you liked this episode, leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think. So we will be back with part two the first Saturday of August. We are off to go watch The Last Czars. Historians out. Even though we live abroad, as women of Indian origin, we have a common thread that binds us together because of our strong cultural background. NRI Women is a platform for women to share their stories and experiences on various topics. Our podcast is about inspiring NRI women and their amazing stories. 
Some of the stories we've covered include growing up in a joint family in India, adopting a child as a single woman, and rebuilding one's life after the loss of a child. Take a listen. We hope you'll be inspired or learn something new. I'm Bettina. And I'm Lenora. And we're the voices behind NRI Woman Podcast. We're all heart. Just look for NRI Woman wherever you get your podcasts or find us at nriwoman.com. New episodes come out every Monday. Make sure you subscribe. Hello, my name is Jacob. And I'm his co-host, five-year-old Olivia. Do you have kids? And are your kids curious? If you answered yes, you should check out Curious Kid Podcast, a weekly educational podcast for curious kids and grown-ups. Every week we learn about another topic. We've already learned about spiderwebs, batteries, the moon, and so much more. You can find us at CuriousKidPodcast.Buzzsprout.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.